Christmas 1828 should have been the happiest of seasons at the Hermitage, Jackson's plantation twelve miles outside Nashville. It was a week before the holiday, and Jackson had won the presidency of the United States in November. How triumphant, Andrew Donaldson said of the victory. How flattering to the cause of the people. Now the president-elect's family and friends were to be on hand for a holiday of good food, liquor, and wine. Jackson was known to serve guests whiskey, champagne, claret, Madeira, port, and gin. And in this special year, a pageant of horses, guns, and martial glory. On Wednesday, December 17, 1828, Jackson was sitting inside the house, answering congratulatory messages. As he worked, friends in town were planning a ball to honor their favorite son before he left for Washington. Led by a marshal, there would be a guard of soldiers on horseback to take Jackson into Nashville, fire a 24-gun artillery salute, and escort him to a dinner followed by dancing. Rachel would be by his side. In the last moments before the celebrations and his duties began, Jackson drafted a letter. Writing in his hurried hand across the fool's cap, he accepted an old friend's good wishes. To the people, for the confidence reposed in me, my gratitude and best services are due, and are pledged to their service. Before he finished the note, Jackson went outside to his Tennessee fields. He knew his election was inspiring both reverence and loathing. The 1828 presidential campaign between Jackson and Adams had been vicious. Jackson's forces had charged that Adams, as minister to Russia, had procured a woman for Tsar Alexander I. As president, Adams was alleged to have spent too much public money decorating the White House, buying fancy china and a billiard table. The anti-Jackson assaults were more colorful. Jackson's foes called his wife a bigamist and his mother a whore, attacking him for a history of dueling, for alleged atrocities in battle against the British, the Spanish, and the Indians, and for being a wife-stealer who had married Rachel before she was divorced from her first husband. Even Mrs. J. is not spared, and my pious mother, nearly fifty years in the tomb, and who, from her cradle to her death, had not a speck upon her character, has been dragged forth and held to public scorn as a prostitute who intermarried with a negro, and my eldest brother sold as a slave in Carolina, Jackson said to a friend. Jackson's advisers marveled at the ferocity of the Adams attacks. The floodgates of falsehood, slander, and abuse have been hoisted, and the most nauseating filth is poured in torrents on the head of not only General Jackson, but all his prominent supporters, William B. Lewis told John Coffey, an old friend of Jackson's from Tennessee. Some Americans thought of the president-elect as a second father of his country. Others wanted him dead. One Revolutionary War veteran, David Coons of Harper's Ferry, Virginia, was hearing rumors of ambush and assassination plots against Jackson. To Coons, Jackson was coming to rule as a tribune of the people, but to others, Jackson seemed dangerous, so dangerous, in fact, that he was worth killing. 
There are a portion of malicious and unprincipled men who have made hard threats with regard to you, men whose baseness would, in my opinion, prompt them to do anything, Coons wrote Jackson. That was the turbulent world awaiting beyond the hermitage. In the draft of a speech he was to deliver in the celebration in town, Jackson was torn between anxiety and nostalgia. The consciousness of a steady adherence to my duty has not been disturbed by the unsparing attacks of which I have been the subject during the election, the speech read. Still, Jackson admitted he felt apprehension about the years ahead. His chief fear? That in Jackson's words, I shall fail to secure the future prosperity of our beloved country. Perhaps the procession to Nashville and the ball at the hotel would lift his spirits. Perhaps Christmas with his family would. While Jackson was outside, word came that his wife had collapsed in her sitting room, screaming in pain. It had been a wretched time for Rachel. She was, Jackson's political foes cried, a black wench, a profligate woman, unfit to be the wife of the President of the United States. Shaken by the attacks, Rachel, also sixty-one, and, in contrast to her husband, short and somewhat heavy, had been melancholy and anxious. The enemies of the general have dipped their arrows in wormwood and gall and sped them at me, Rachel lamented during the campaign. Almighty God, was there ever anything equal to it? On the way home from a trip to Nashville after the balloting, Rachel was devastated to overhear a conversation about the lurid charges against her. Her niece, the 21-year-old Emily Donaldson, tried to reassure her aunt but failed. No, Emily, Mrs. Jackson replied, I'll never forget it. When news of her husband's election arrived, she said, Well, for Mr. Jackson's sake, I am glad. For my own part, I never wished it. Now the cumulative toll of the campaign and the coming administration exacted its price, as Rachel was put to bed, the sound of her cries still echoing in her slave Hannah's ears. Jackson rushed to his wife, sent for doctors, did what he could. Later, as she lay resting, her husband added an emotional postscript to the letter he had begun. P.S. Whilst writing, Mrs. J., from good health, has been taken suddenly ill, with excruciating pain in the left shoulder, arm, and breast. What may be the result of this violent attack, God only knows. I hope for her recovery, and in haste close this letter. You will pardon any inaccuracies. A.J. Yet his hopes would not bring her back. 